So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to open that up to uh, Luke chapter 21. Uh, in the Black Pew Bibles under the seat in front of you, that's going to be on page 888. <clears throat> so over the... Excuse me. Over the last few weeks, uh, we have been um, listening to Jesus prophesy, to tell the people who will listen to him what is going to be coming. He has said how the temple will be destroyed and how there are false messiahs who will arise in that time. There will be wars and there will be rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes and famines and diseases. And the persecution of believers will occur even unto death. But even in their deaths, they will not be destroyed. But Jerusalem will be destroyed. It will be surrounded by armies and laid waste. And this is a consequence of the people and of their leaders walking in what I called a couple of weeks ago, the way of strength. God had said to Israel that you can stay in this land that I have given you for as long as you are careful to do everything that I've commanded you to do. He said, you must love me with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. But instead of trusting God, instead of loving him, they trusted and loved their positions, their wealth, their authority, their relationship with the Romans to provide for them, to keep them safe and to keep them comfortable. They approached life with an attitude of, I've got this. I've got this figured out. I've got this under control. I have everything I need right here. But Jesus told his disciples to prepare a little bit differently. To walk in the way of weakness. So where the world would prepare a brilliant defense to secure their freedom from, persecu from per persecution... Jesus said, don't think about it ahead of time. Don't worry about it. Use it as an opportunity to tell people about me instead. And he said to his disciples, when the world is running to the city for protection and safety, you run out into the country. And this is part of a larger pattern that we see in the teachings of Jesus, where what the world views as strong in God's economy, through God, in God's eyes, is actually weak. But what the world views as weak in God's kingdom is strength. And so today, in the passage that we're going to look at, Jesus is going to continue to give his disciples and us signs to be watching for. So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We're going to pause right there for a minute. So immediately before this, Jesus is detailing the fall of Jerusalem, when all of the strong things that the religious leaders trusted in were going to be shaken and destroyed. And it's the same sort of pattern that he's talking about here, but on a much broader scale. So it's not just about Jerusalem being shaken, but about the whole world being shaken, where all of the things that the people thought that they could depend on aren't going to be dependable anymore. And it seems to come down even to the very laws of physics, right? The stars in the sky, the roaring of the waves. Imagine you wake up and the sun is not rising in the east anymore. It's rising in the west today. 
That's one of those things that you can depend on, right? You know that the sun is going to rise in the east, and all of a sudden, it doesn't anymore. That doesn't make sense. The tide is coming and going, not on its regular, what is it, like 13-hour intervals? I, I don't know. I haven't ever lived by the ocean. But the tide comes and goes at regular intervals, and all of a sudden, it's just not anymore. It comes and goes in an hour, and then it comes and goes over the course of four days. The things that we thought were dependable in the world, all the things that people thought could be trusted, that they thought they could rely on when everything else was crazy, even those things are being shaken and twisted and changed. You flick the switch and the light doesn't come on. The internet's down forever. Gasoline no longer combusts. Spring doesn't come. What would that do to you? Not to know that, you know, the light's just not coming on now, but the light's not coming on ever again. The entire world as you know, know it, everything that you thought you could depend on is no longer dependable. And so the words that Jesus uses here in verse 26, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. That's what appears to be happening here. Everything that they thought was stable, everything that they thought they could rely on is being revealed as not as stable and not as reliable as they thought. And their world is falling to pieces around them. And then, verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So when Jesus says the Son of Man here, that is Jesus' preferred term for himself in the book of Luke. And, if it's, and it is a reference back to uh, Daniel 7. So that's in the Old Testament. Daniel is a prophet who is given a vision in which, um, in this vision, he is present in the throne room of God. So he is in heaven, and he sees this vision. Um, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him, that is the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there's very similar language here between what Daniel is talking about and what Jesus is talking about, such that they're probably talking about the same event. And so Jesus is using, intentionally using this language to draw his disciples into the fact that he is talking, that he is using this Old Testament prophecy to talk about what is going to be coming in the future. And there's kind of two major groups of possibilities for exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, and this is one of those things that we can, that different people can see different ways and interpret different ways and still be friends. We can still be Christians, even if we see some of these things a little bit differently. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, you may see different things in this passage than I do, and that's okay. If you see different things than I do, let's talk about that. I'd be really excited to talk about that, actually. Um, but I see sort of two major possibilities here. 
And the first is that what Jesus is talking about with the Son of Man coming on a cloud um, is in what we call uh, traditionally the ascension. So Jesus lived and then he was crucified. He was an innocent man dying in the place of sinners like you and I. He died for our sins. He was laid in his tomb and on the third day he rose again. And after he rose again, he spent 40 days with his disciples and then delivered to them the great commission, go out into all the world and make disciples. And then we pick up that narrative in Acts chapter 1. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and on a cloud, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So in in the ascension, we see Jesus coming to heaven, going to heaven from earth on a cloud. And so here, in his ascension into heaven, he is going into heaven on a cloud. In Daniel 7, we see the Son of Man coming into heaven before the Ancient of Days, on a cloud. And so that's one of the possibilities for what's happening here, is it's talking about Jesus ascending into heaven. Um, But that would mean that the first part of the passage, the signs and the sun and moon and stars and the distress of nations in perplexity, that would have had to happen prior to Jesus' ascension, prior to him going into heaven. So sometime prior to that, there had to be some set of occurrences that would make it look like the powers of the heavens themselves were being shaken. Well, it just so happens. When you read uh, Matthew's story of the crucifixion of Jesus especially, you find just exactly that. Uh, Matthew says in Matthew 27 that from the sixth hour, that's noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And so the noontime sun ceased to shine. Supposed to be sunny, and it's not. And not just for a few minutes like an eclipse, but for three hours there's darkness over all the land. And then Jesus, hanging on the cross, cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion, that's a Roman soldier, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So there were enough signs in the heavens around Jesus' death that even the unbelieving pagan soldiers who had overseen his execution recognized who he was. This is somebody who had nothing to gain and everything to lose by believing in Jesus, and they saw those signs and they believed. So the first option for how we look at that is just that, that Jesus is talking about the signs and the wonders around his own crucifixion and then his ascension into heaven. The second possibility is that he's looking much further into the future and looking towards the second coming. Because if you remember uh, what the angels said to his, his disciples in Acts 1, they said that he's coming back in the same way that he left. 
And so historically, we've talked about this event as the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the second advent of Jesus. Uh, and it's this event that the Apostle Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians 4. And he says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, but that you may not grieve as that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So Jesus could be talking about his second coming to the earth, to bring to fruition all of his plans for creation. And that right there, guys, that moment, that is what we are hoping for. That is what we are waiting for. That is what we should be longing for. The apostles and, and Paul there in, in 1 Thessalonians were not just hoping that one day they'd die and, and get out of this world and go to heaven. But their hope, their living hope, was that one day Jesus would return. He died, he rose again, and then, and then 40 days later ascended into heaven, where he is seated in power at the right hand of God the Father. And one day he is coming again to complete the redemption, the restoration, the renewal, the recreation of all things. Now, if that is what Jesus is talking about here in the passage in Luke, then all of those trials and tribulations that he is talking about are signs that are preparing us for the day that he is coming again. Because Jesus says that after those trials and tribulations, after the persecution and destruction, after everything else has been revealed to be a weak and unstable foundation, then he will return in power and in glory. And he gives an interesting observation here in this next verse about these signs and the difficulties and confusion. And he says, now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So stand up straight. Do not cower in fear. Everyone else is cowering in fear because of what they are seeing here. Verse 26, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming in the world. Everyone else is cowering, but you, you are standing up straight, unafraid, because your redemption is drawing near. Now, this word redemption uh, is, is kind of the anti-parish uh, from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it said back in verse 18, right, not a hair of your head will perish. We talked about that as being sort of a permanent, complete, utter destruction. Uh, and the Greek word that Jesus uses in each place, they're, they're, they start the same. They're kind of similar sounding. Uh, apolitai and apolitrosis, if you're interested. Um, but I think that he chose that word intentionally, right, where he said, not a hair of your head will perish. And now we have the opposite of perish. We have anti-perish. We have unperishing. This is the redemption of all 
things. Stand up straight. Don't cower in fear. Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, if the early option, right, if Jesus is talking about his crucifixion and ascension, if we're dealing with the early option, then then that redemption was accomplished on the cross. Once and for all, you have been redeemed from your sins. And so when they saw those signs, it should have been an encouragement to them to remember that their redemption it has been accomplished on the cross. But if, the, but if Jesus is talking about things that are yet to come, then we also should stand up straight. We should straighten up and raise our heads because the redemption of all things is coming when we see these signs. And these are signs. These are signs that he has given us that are not, they're not super specific, right? They're not specific signs, but general signs. And he expands on that a little bit, starting in verse 29. He says, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So when does summer get here? What's the, what's the dividing line between spring, spring and summer? What is it? Is it the 21st of June? That's, that's astronomically the beginning of summer. Is it Memorial Day? Is it the first time you can go swimming in the lake and not freeze your toes off? Is it the last day of planting season? Is it the end of school? Right? We've all got kind of that, that day in our heads that defines when summer begins and when summer ends. But before summer arrives, before that day gets here, there's lots of signs. Right? You see, like Jesus said, the trees budding out. You see the farmers working in the field. You see green grass starting to grow. You see the snowbanks melting. Now, do any of those things necessarily tell you, okay, it is three weeks, two days, and 16 hours until summer gets here. That's not how those signs work. They're, they're, less, um, they're less mile markers, right? You head down the interstate in like April, and you leave here and it's white and it's cold and everything's dead. And as you start getting closer to Bangor, start getting closer to Portland, what do you start to see? You start to see green again. (laughs) You start to see life again. You don't see snow anymore. You do that, and you know that that as you're seeing those things, you're getting closer to your destination. But do you see that first uh, that first green bud as you're headed south and they'll say, there, I've got 80 miles left to go on my journey. That, that's not how those work, right? But they are reminders that spring is coming. Summer is coming. You are getting there. And the signs that Jesus gives us here work in much the same way. They don't necessarily tell us exactly how long. They don't necessarily tell us exactly what's left on the eschatological checklist. But they remind us. They give us hope. And if Jesus is talking about his crucifixion and his ascension here, then in the days that are to come, 
Jesus' disciples are going to be hard-pressed, and they are going to need every bit of encouragement that they possibly can to remember, to remember the hope that he has given them. And if he's talking about things that are coming far in the future, then we are going to be hard-pressed as his people. But we, like his disciples, are going to need to remember our hope. And then he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, we're going to get a little technical here for a minute, and I'm sorry there's no way around this. So with this verse, there's a little bit of difficulty with that later option, right? If, if, we take the, if we take the early option that Jesus is talking about his crucifixion, then these things all happened within days and weeks of Jesus saying them. But if he's talking about something later on, something further in the future, then we've got some difficulties because Jesus said this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And not all of these things took place before that generation passed away. So there's, there's three sorts of ways that we can handle this. Um, and to be entirely intellectually honest, we have to acknowledge that one of the ways that we could handle this is just say, Jesus was wrong. He made a prophecy that didn't come true. Um, or we can say that the people who wrote down Jesus' words got it wrong. They misunderstood. They didn't write it down clearly. Um, from my perspective, I am rejecting both of those options. Um, so I believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God, and it is a faithful representation of what Jesus said. And I also believe that Jesus was the Son of God, who was not capable of speaking falsely. And so... Um, we're going to set that option aside. The, um, the second option that we have is that it just refers exclusively to the crucifixion and the ascension, um, which is a possibility. The, the other option, the third option that we have is that when Jesus uses that word generation there, he's not necessarily talking about a chronologically limited group of people. Um, because actually about... Uh, a little bit more than half of the time that Jesus uses that word generation in the book of Luke. He's not actually talking about this 40-year group of people, but he's talking about people who share a common attitude towards life, a common worldview, if you will. So we talk about you know, millennials and boomers and Gen X, and there, there are some there are some things around when people were born, but most of the time what we're talking about there is actually the way that those people look at the world and think about the world. And so, you know, when, <clears throat> you know, when, uh, if somebody were to say to me, yeah, well, you're just an, you're just an entitled millennial who, they're, they're not talking necessarily about when it is that I was born, but they're talking about the way that I approach life and the way that I think about things and the way that I act. And if I was to say to somebody, um, there's nobody in this room that I would be comfortable saying this to, but uh, if I said, okay, boomer, okay, Bill, yeah, okay, boomer, uh, I'm not, I'm not, it's not about when Bill was born, right, but it's about how Bill is behaving and how he looks at the world and how he's processing things, Um, and so, and Jesus uses generation that way 
uh, quite often, actually, in Luke, uh, and then Luke uses it in Acts as well. Uh, back in Luke 11, he says that the men of Nineveh will, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is taking these two groups of people, the men of Nineveh, who heard Jonah's pe- preaching and repented, and then this generation, this group of people, who heard Jesus' preaching and failed to repent. Now, did everybody who was born between the years of 10 BC and 10 AD fail to repent at Jesus' teaching? No, absolutely not. But there was a big chunk of them who viewed the world in a certain way, who failed to repent the way that they should have. In Luke 7, Jesus said, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. So the people of this generation, Jesus says, aren't satisfied with anything. Now that's not true of everybody who was born in a certain time period. But it is true of a certain group of people who view the world in a certain way. And so it's very possible here that when Jesus says this generation, what he's talking about is he is talking about people who are bent on rejecting Jesus and his teaching, whatever the cost. They will not cease to exist. That generation, people who see the world in that way, will not cease to exist until all has taken place. And even after everything else has been revealed to be untrustworthy, even after everything else has been revealed to be false, they still will reject Jesus. They still will reject him and his truth. That generation will still be, people who see the world in that way will still be there when Jesus returns. And he says, heaven and earth will pass away, verse 33, but my words will not pass away. And this is, this is, bigger than it looks on the surface right here. Um, Because the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So Jesus says, my words will stand forever. Isaiah says that God's word will stand forever. What is it that Jesus is saying here? For people who are paying attention, for people who are listening, Jesus is, saying, is equating himself with God. He is saying, I am God here. And he closes this passage with a warning. Verse 34, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell up on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now this piece right here seems like Jesus is looking far forward into the future. Like he's taking that later option. He says that waiting for that day will be difficult. And there will be a temptation to be distracted by the cares of the world or to seek to numb the pain. Stay awake. 
He says, stay awake. Because if you're not paying attention, if you're not awake, it's going to catch you by surprise. You are going to be caught unprepared. And so we need to be constantly aware of the fact that the systems and the patterns of this world cannot save us. They can't be trusted. They can't be depended on. But it is only the return of Jesus that will set right the things in this world that are wrong. Don't get distracted. Don't look elsewhere. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, praying for the strength to endure these things. And again here, Jesus is urging his followers to walk in the way of weakness and to not, not to walk in the way of strength. Now, I gave kind of two options for understanding this passage. The early option where Jesus is talking about his crucifixion and his ascension. and The later option where he's talking about his second coming. But there is a third. And ultimately, I think that this is probably the most helpful way for us to look at it. Not as an either or, but as a both and. Not as an either or, but as a both. Which would mean that Jesus is talking here simultaneously about two different things. He is talking about his crucifixion and his ascension. And he is talking about what is coming down the road for us. And that seems, that seems to me to ring true. Because there are patterns in the way that God deals with the world. Right? Every single time in the Bible that we see a repentant sinner coming before God, no matter how terrible they have been, what does God do? What does God do? He forgives them every single time. That's a pattern in how God deals with the world. And here, it looks like the pattern that Jesus is setting up is that before he establishes himself as the power, as the way, as the truth, as the light, he shakes everything else in the world to its foundations to remind us and to prepare us because he will do whatever it takes to bring his children home. You ever have, or know, or maybe be, that kid that all it takes is one sort of strong word from their parent, and they're, they're immediately remorseful, they're immediately in tears, they're so sorry for whatever it was that they did, even if they don't know what it was. And then maybe, maybe you were the kid that needed a little stronger correction than just a word from your parents. You needed perhaps, um, you needed perhaps your life to completely fall apart before you got to the point where you were willing to listen. And I think that in a lot of ways, we are not dissimilar from that in our relationship with God. There are some of us who we knew from a very early age, this is right, this is good, this is true. And we were willing to answer Jesus's call with just a word, come, follow me. And there are other people who needed their lives to completely disintegrate. They needed to hit that absolute rock bottom before they were willing to answer Jesus's call. And that's what's happening here on a larger scale. It's not just one person's life 
falling apart to call them to repentance. But in this falling apart, it is all things are being shaken. All things are being revealed to be insufficient gods. And the falling apart of the systems and the patterns of this world are not a reason to panic. They are not a prompt for us to to band together and to get it solved and to get it figured out. But if that's what Jesus is doing here, then the falling apart of the systems of this world are a call to repent of our idolatrous trust in those things and to place our faith fully and completely in Jesus Christ. And the sooner that we can see it that way, then the sooner we can begin to take hope and solace in the fact that our redemption is drawing near. Because the more signs that we see of things falling apart, then the closer our redemption is. Just as when you drive south, the more greenery you see, the closer you know the clo- you know that you are getting close. In the same way, as we see the world falling apart, we know that our redemption is drawing near. But one of the other patterns that we see is that no matter how patient the Lord is, judgment does come. Four hundred years Noah spent building the ark. Plenty of time for anyone to repent. Plenty of time for news to get out. But the flood did come. For 400 years after David, God sent prophets to Israel to call them to repentance. But the exile still came. Judgment still comes. And you, today, you have been given another opportunity to prepare yourself for the coming of the judgment of the Lord. We live in turbulent times. And maybe it is my lack of perception, but it seems like it is becoming more and more turbulent as time goes on. But we need to let the difficulty of these signs, you need to let the difficulty of these times be a sign to you that the judgment of the Lord is coming on the earth. And on that day, the true object of your love and trust and affection will be revealed. And all that stands apart from God will perish. But all that is united to God will be redeemed. And so today, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are loving and worshiping and serving some other God, you must repent And place your faith in Christ because he is the one who will redeem and restore all that you have broken. But but that call is not just for the unbeliever. That is the call for the believer as well. Because walking in repentance and faith is not a one-time choice. But it it is a lifestyle that we choose to walk in. Continually evaluating our lives and repenting of sin and placing our faith in Christ. And so if you are a believer today, I need to remind you, do not run to the things of this world for refuge. Do not run to the places the world thinks are strong because they aren't. They look it, but they aren't. Also, do not get distracted or seek comfort from the things that this world offers. They will leave you weighed down and hungover. 
Do not surrender your lives and your hearts to the cares of this world. And the thing is, we don't need to go looking for any of these things. This is not something that if we just stay away from the bad places and the bad people, we'll be able to avoid. You don't need to go wandering to find these things because they are right here. Look at me, they say. Think about me. Worry about me. And as long as you are devoting your time and attention to those things, then those are the things that have captured your heart. Sports, work, politics, gossip, escaping into fiction. These stinking, ever-present phones. All of them crying out to me. Bow down. Pay attention to me. Think about me. Worry about me. And I will give you everything that you need to get through this life. Just keep watching. Just keep buying. Just keep consuming. Just keep running. And I'll make sure that everything's going to be okay. That's the lie. Those are the lies that the things of this world tell you. And all too often, these are the things that we have built our lives around. These are the things that we turn to for peace, for security, for belonging, for distraction. And we would be better off without them. And one day those things will be removed from you. They will be taken away. Sometimes quite forcibly. Sometimes quite painfully. Job gone. The sport you love taken away. Your beloved politician will lose an election. And the only thing that is more tragic than having that thing ripped out of your life by force is to have it remain there comfortably. To spend the short years of your life numbing yourself with drink, with drugs, or with diversions. To run into the strongholds of the world and trust in them and to find that on the day of Jesus' return, you have been caught unaware. You have been caught like in a trap. And so whether you are a believer or not today, in this passage, Jesus is telling you that you need to be watching for these signs. So as you see the things that the world sees as stable and trustworthy and safe falling apart, those are signs. Pay attention. As you see the stable and trustworthy things in the lives of those around you falling apart, those are signs for them and for you as well. As the stable things in your life that you thought you could trust start to fail, let those be signs to you as well. Not mile markers, but certainly changing of the leaves. Reminding you, believer and unbeliever alike, that you must repent of your sins and trust in Christ because judgment is coming. And the only way that you or I can escape that is by repenting of our sins and placing our trust in him. But as we see those signs, 
it should also remind us, brothers and sisters, do not be discouraged, do not grow weary, but stand up straight, because the day of your redemption is drawing near. In a lot of ways, the story of the coming of the kingdom of heaven is a tale of coming and going, of rising and of falling. And today, for now, for a while, the powers and the principalities of this world look strong. They look strong, they're attractive, they're easy, they're comfortable, and they call us to trust in them. Armies, leaders, walls, they will all fail in the face of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. They look strong. And while we live in this world, there is a temptation to indulge in the things that this world has to offer to take our minds off of things. Drugs, alcohol, TV, sports, phones. These are things that are the bait that lure us into the trap of comfort and complacency. It looks comfortable. The world looks strong. The world looks comfortable. But there is coming a time when the way of weakness and the way of strength find their ultimate reversal. In the time leading up to this moment, everything in the world will be revealed that it cannot be trusted, that we cannot have faith in it. It looked like the strongest thing going, yes. It looked like the world was safe to trust, but it isn't. It looked like it offered comfort and peace, but it has brought only despair and death. And in that day, it will be revealed that the, that the only thing you can trust, your only hope is and always has been Jesus Christ. You thought you could trust in your job. Nope. You thought you could trust in your family. Nope. You thought you could trust in your own strength, your intelligence, your charisma. Nope. You thought that you could trust your country, your government, capitalism, socialism, whatever. You thought you could trust those things. You cannot. None of these things can be trusted. None of them can be depended upon. They will lie to you. They will tell you that they can be trusted. And they can't. And all of the days from now until that day, are an elaborate dance designed to demonstrate to you that no created thing is worthy of your love, of your faith, of your worship. But it is the Lord God and it is him alone who you can trust and worship and love. And so the, fail, the ongoing failure of all of the systems of this world, all of the falling apart that we see around us, should be a sign that is meant to remind you of the truth to prepare us for that day. And so as you see those things, as you see those things in the world around you, as you see those things in your world, that falling apart is a sign. Repent of your sin. Repent of your idolatry. Do not trust those things, but place your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is so easy for us to trust 
the false security that this world offers. It is so easy for us to take our ease in the comfortable distractions that are ever present for us. But Lord, we want to heed Jesus' warning. We don't want to be caught unaware. But we want, Lord, we want you to shake the strongholds of this world. We want you to tear down the idols that we have built. And Lord, I pray that when we see those things, when we experience those things, that you would cause up us to stand up and lift up our heads because we know, Lord, that as the world is being torn down around us, that our redemption is drawing near. And we believe, Lord, that it is Jesus Christ who redeems us. Lord, we believe that it is Jesus Christ who has come to save us. Lord, we believe that it is Jesus Christ who has come to bring heaven here on earth, to remake, to renew, to restore all of the things that we have broken. We believe that and we trust that. And Lord, we pray that you would keep the eyes of our hearts focused, fixed upon him, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name that we pray all of these things today. Amen. In closing, we're going to sing together the song that we sang earlier, Trust in God, and as we do, let us consider both the challenge and the joy of choosing to place our trust in him.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace. Thank you.